I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. The Diving Deep EDU podcast aims at thought-provoking conversations that help listeners dive deeper into educational practices with a focus on teacher retention, recruitment, and burnout. Subscribe to the Diving Deep EDU podcast newsletter to get more information about this podcast and these topics. A link is in the show notes. Our guest today is Melissa Arnold Lyon. Melissa is an assistant professor of public policy at the Rockefeller College of Public Affairs and the Policy at the University at Albany, SUNY. Melissa studies the political economy of education policy, focusing on inequality, governance, and teacher politics and policy. She's interested in how political structures shape and get shaped by the incentives and behaviors of market actors, and conversely, how economic inequalities shape the politics of education and education governance. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. I want to start the conversation off by you telling us a little bit more about the work you're currently doing. Well, first, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. And so I think the work that I'm working on right now, which is most closely related to this teacher politics and policy strand of my research that I'm also really excited about, is a big project, uh, both tracking and thinking about the causes and the consequences of teacher strikes. Mm -hmm. So I got started with this project uh, three or so years ago, three, four years ago. And um, I have a couple of working papers and some projects on the horizon. I've shown that Teacher strikes really change the way that we talk about education and political discourse and political communication and help to get education on the political agenda. And then I'm also trying to look at, okay, what are the causes of the teacher strikes Hmm. in terms of what are they what do teachers say are the reasons for their strikes and also what are kind of the predictors of teacher strikes? And then what are the consequences for student achievement and um you know, typical education policy outcomes you might think of like school funding. But also I'm trying to expand on that even more right now. And I've been looking at, uh, do teacher strikes change voter mobilization Hmm. among parents and among um, union members who might be um, either motivated or sort of, you know, become disillusioned by the politics of education and that might change their whether or not they decide to vote. So I've got a whole bunch of research that's, uh, you know, trying to understand more about teacher strikes. Yeah, it seems like that research you're doing now is tied into the research you did in your dissertation with union work and things like that. What interests you with teacher unions and these instances of striking? I mean, that's totally right. So I was a teacher myself. I taught sixth grade in Texas. And as you may know, collective bargaining is illegal in Texas. And so I really, I really didn't have any engagement with the local teachers union at all. And I definitely, I was a teacher, I became a teacher in 2010. And, and that was a certain moment in time, which is actually about the same time as we get to talk in the paper where we start to see uh, the teaching profession really go on a um, downward spiral. 
But um, so that's when I started teaching and um, and it was really, really hard. It was Mm -hmm. a lot harder than I expected it to be. And it was um, I was so, so exhausted. And Mm -hmm. so when I went to graduate school, I went to Columbia in New York City for graduate school where there's just a totally different mindset about teachers unions and Mm -hmm. about um, and, and just about teachers and schooling in general. And so as I was pursuing and learning about, you know, what do I want to study in graduate school? I became more and more interested in teachers unions as a way to try to understand why what I experienced teaching in Texas was so different than what I was observing and just like the culture of teaching that um, in, in New York City at the time that I was there. Yeah, now some people have a negative uh, view of unions, right? I'm, I'm in public education and, and part of a local union, and I've seen positive aspects of the union, but there's also this negative attitude of unions, and, and we hear that through many different outlets. In what ways do unions, and again, we're going to be talk, <laughs> talking about <laughs> your paper, but, but I just want to hear a little bit, little bit about this. Um, in what ways do unions sort of help the teaching profession? And, and I know you've done a lot of research on this, so maybe highlight one or two? And then what ways do unions sort of bring down or uh, put up roadblocks for the health of the teacher profession? I mean, these are great. You know, I love talking about this kind of stuff. So um, (laughs) so that's totally fine with me. So um, yeah, I mean, I think what I find is that teachers unions really do affect the amount of funding, amount of school resources, amount of funding that gets allocated to schools. And specifically teachers unions bring about more funding. So when you weaken teachers unions, you start to see that as a result of various actions to weaken unions, like right to work policies that affect teachers unions, that in those places, those schools are getting less funding because the union's not there to advocate for that additional spending. Now, the literature is definitely more mixed on whether that additional spending translates to higher performance on student tests, Hmm. higher academic achievement as measured by test scores. And Hmm. so I think that that's still, that there are some studies that show um, that more instructional, higher instructional salaries lead to higher academic achievement. And there are some studies that have shown that um, unions have uh, changed the way that new money is spent so that more money is spent in productive venues and thus increases student academic achievement. But a lot of other studies have also found that unions, at the same time that they raise expenditures, don't always raise student academic achievement. And I think that like a big takeaway of mine from that is, and I'm still obviously thinking about this and working on this, but right now at the moment I would say that I think we need to ask ourselves what we expect of teachers unions and um, that often teachers unions have said that their interests are aligned with student interests and, and maybe that it's right to criticize that as a talking point, but I'm not sure that it's um, totally accurate that we should even expect teachers to be representing students, I mean, teachers unions to be representing students. And so I think that sometimes because teachers you know, and, and this is related to this paper too, because often people go into the teaching profession with such a sense of um, purpose and um, sort of like a public sector orientation towards the public good that I think we may be put on too much 
uh, expect too much of teachers to be sort mm. of self-sacrificing. I, t- I totally agree with that. <laughs> now, one more follow-up uh, with the union idea. Melissa, now, we have unions, right? And and a lot of them, the teacher unions, now I'm, I'm just speaking from the other side, a lot of those uh, teacher unions are really, they're just keeping the mediocre to bad teachers in the profession. They're just protecting that. And really, they're just keeping things moving at the baseline. And unions are, are preventing progress to move forward. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that There are certainly situations where unions are protecting bad teachers, and there are certainly situations where unions are blocking reform that might otherwise be productive. Um, And sometimes they're doing that from a place of power, and sometimes they're doing that from a place of weakness. Mm. Um, And so I think I'll always remember one of the first interviews I did when I was in graduate school was of a union leader. And... I was um, very, at that time, I was very critical of unions. And um, specifically, there are a couple of articles about seniority transfer rights and how seniority transfer rights are very bad for students. It's the idea that um, more senior teachers get, uh, will have the ability to transfer schools. And um, oftentimes what that means is the more senior teachers end up transferring yeah. to uh, white um higher to middle income schools. And then mm-hmm. um, so you end up with more educational inequality as a result is the what the research on that shows. And so I come in trying to, you know, I'm ready to grill him on seniority transfer rights. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and he says to me, he's like, you know, I never go into a negotiation saying, you know what I want? seniority transfer rights. (laughs) He said, I go into the negotiation saying I want higher salaries and better benefits and benefits, health, healthcare benefits, mostly what means Mm -hmm. higher salaries, better healthcare benefits. And then the district says, we don't have any money for that. So will you take this? (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) so I think there is a little that I think that we have to also consider this give and take and um, that, Sometimes the union is protecting bad teachers, but that that is a product of negotiations that have happened with the district as well. And so mm-hmm. it's a complex system. It's not yeah. it's not multi it's not single actor. It's not even mm-hmm. double actor. I think it's mm-hmm. a multi actor system. Well, thanks for giving us a little insight into into the work that you have going on, and it goes back to like you said back in graduate school. And also, thank you for sharing that you came into it sort of critical of unions, and now it seems that your viewpoint has you know maybe not changed, but but widened to sort of appreciate the complex nature of of the situation and all of the actors at play. But the reason I reached out to you is because of your wonderful paper, the rise and fall of the teaching profession which I will link in the show notes. So listeners, after we're done talking, go click on that and read the entire article and with many wonderful graphs included as well. So as we shift this conversation to focus on that, Melissa, you are the doctor and the patient is the teaching profession. So they've come to see you, right? Mm -hmm. How will you determine if they are healthy or if they are sick? Yeah. So for the teaching profession, we really did want to consider this sort of comprehensive way of thinking about the health of the teaching profession. Mm -hmm. And so we take that idea and we break it out into sort of four parts. Prestige. So do people want, do parents want their children to teach? Do people say that teaching is a prestigious profession? 
and student interest in teaching. So for high school kids and um, college freshmen, do they express interest in the teaching profession? Then teacher preparation, how many teacher licenses, new teacher licenses are getting issued? How many people are graduating from um, with from universities with education, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees? And then we also look at, okay, once they get into teaching, how do they feel about it? So we also look at teacher satisfaction, whether or not teachers report um, high levels of job satisfaction. And I'm sure you're probably getting to this across all of these measures, we're seeing um, really, really similar trends over the past 50 years. So they really do track on to each other. And we think that's because of this kind of cyclical sort of nature, or, or maybe cyclical is not the right sense. It's sort of like an arc of the teaching profession where there's mm -hmm. society and then student interest. And then you have to decide that you want to become a teacher and prepare for it. And then once you become a teacher, are you satisfied? They all kind of work in tandem. Yeah. One of the first things that jumped out to me from your paper was prestige, right? That's not often a word used when discussing the current problem of the teaching profession. So bring us into that a little bit more. Like, what is your definition of prestige that you're using? Because that might mean different things to different people. And why is that important in teaching? Yeah, so we actually started out, you're right, that there people don't talk that much about prestige of the teaching profession. And a lot of times the reason is because prestige, people um, kind of assume that the prestige of a given occupation doesn't change much over time. Um, mm. But we were interested to try to see if that was actually the case. Yeah. And so um, the way that we measure prestige is by is twofold. So on the one hand, we use this survey that asks, shows people a series of occupations. And the survey has been pretty consistent since the 19 early 1970s okay. that says, okay, for each of these occupations, I want you to tell me, does the occupation have great deal of prestige, some prestige, not very much prestige, or no prestige? And so we look at, over time, since the 1970s, hmm. what's the percent of respondents who view teaching as prestigious? So having some prestige or a great deal of prestige. Yeah. And um, then we also look at whether or not parents say that they want their child to teach. So PDK has asked this question since 1970 and honestly mm. before that. Um, and so we just look at the percent of parents that say, yes, they would want their child to become a teacher. And we track both of those um, over very long periods of time, um, almost 50 years. Now, if prestige in the teaching profession is diminishing, how can it be built back up? Like how, in what ways can prestige within teaching profession be built up so that, you know, people look at it with a sense of prestige going forward? Yeah. So I think um, just kind of uh, clarifying what we see in the trends a little bit, what we see for prestige and then what we continue to see with the other measures as well is a really steep and dramatic drop in the 1970s throughout that whole decade, basically. And then a recovery in the 1980s where we mm. actually see prestige get close to um, its uh, 1970s levels. And then it sort of levels off in the next few decades. 
And then again, more recently, around 2010, we see another really dramatic drop. So for the percent of parents wanting their children to teach, that's the lowest that it's ever been uh, Hmm. since the question was asked in 1970. And for um, the percent of respondents who view teaching as prestigious, that's we're very close to the lowest that it's been in 1980. And we're... um, not anywhere near, you know, uh, post-1990 levels. And what, why do you think that is? So we look into, and it might be worth saying that the paper initially we started out just thinking about prestige. Oh, and then okay. and, and then we were kind of thinking about some of our other um, constructs in relation to the health of the teaching profession as related to prestige, but we weren't totally sure how. And as we kind of looked at these and started to think about interest, preparation, satisfaction, we were sort of realizing that it wasn't like we originally thought of interest as maybe like a predictor of prestige or prestige, maybe a predictor of interest, but we realized it was much more complicated than that. And that really they were all kind of getting at this sort of deeper construct of the health of the teaching profession. Mm -hmm. And so we show that for each of these, they really do follow that similar trend over time. And then we go into, I think eight, but it's a lot of different potential (laughs) hypotheses for why that might be. So Melissa, is there one hypothesis that stands out to you? I know I know you have a number of them that you've discussed in the paper, I think up to eight. Is there one that sort of comes to the surface or comes to the mind as we're talking about this now? Yes. So first, I just want to acknowledge that our, we're testing these different hypotheses, we're examining them. But the way that we think of our contribution here is sort of putting out the hypotheses and trying to point a finger towards the ones that we think are the most promising. And we really need a lot more research to get at Mm -hmm. the actual cause and effect going on here. So we are really taking a macro view. And when we look at our hypotheses, we're pulling in data sources that we're hoping other people will kind of pick up the mantle and continue to test these. Um, And so our testing of hypotheses at this stage is really just an eyeball test. And so I hope that any listeners right now do not feel as though they should be intimidated by any of the methods in this paper, because our methods are essentially pulling together all of these different data sources and showing them on a figure for you to kind of make your own conclusions. Hmm. And so, but there is one that dumps out. And so, um, what we see when we look at real wages is actually it tracks on really cleanly, probably the most cleanly of all of the different hypotheses that we check with these various trends in the health of the teaching profession um, starting back in the 1970s. So real wages for teachers followed a similar trend of decline. What we see when we look at real wages is that there was a very similar dramatic decline in real teacher salaries between 1970 and 1980. This was largely due to inflation and salaries not keeping up with inflation. But then we do see that salaries increase in the 1980s, again, level off in the 90s. And then we see a similar decrease in 2010 uh, around the timing of the Great Recession. And teacher salaries on average have never really come back up to pre-2010 levels. So if we were going to point to one place where we think we should start to explore more to understand the relationship and the causal effect of um, salaries on the 
state of the profession, we would we would think about salaries. I have a couple follow-up questions with the salaries, but first I want to jump back. I have one more with prestige that I wanted to sort of ask you about as we were talking about that. And then I do want to have a couple with these real wages that, that you're talking about. With prestige, as we think about data, because I'm in public education and many educators across the country, data is always at the forefront. And when data comes into the conversation when discussing uh, teacher prestige, right, over and over again. For example, reducing teachers to administering tests and those students that are taking that test, they need to sort of produce this certain number. And that, you know, I I believe you mentioned that in a paper or I heard it in an interview or another article that you were a part of, that can reduce teacher prestige. And I 100% agree. But here's my follow-up. How can we use student data right and the, and use these data to help students while also elevating teacher prestige so they're so they both can be true how can we lift the teacher so they want to be in that profession and it's a redeeming profession it's rewarding you know they can they can hold their head up high when they walk out of that building when they walk into the building but they can also create these data sets that help drive instruction like have you thought about that? Is there any way that that can happen? Have you seen that? What are, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do. And I think I'm really glad you uh, brought up this point because actually another sort of the maybe second most compelling factor that we uh, think could be a cause of these changes in the state of the teaching profession is actually teacher accountability and autonomy. We hmm. don't have such... Uh, we don't have as much data, as many years of data that really gets at this idea of teacher autonomy. But what we do have shows that teacher autonomy has pretty steadily declined since about 2000. And so the percent of teachers who feel secure in their job has declined since 2000, especially uh, around 2010 when we see the introduction Mm -hmm. of Race to the Top. And that also coincides with student test scores being um, tied to teacher evaluations in many places. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we certainly can use data and evidence to improve the teaching profession. And I mean, I'm a full believer in the scientific method, right? And data, collecting data, testing hypotheses is a core part of the scientific Mm -hmm. method. So I think that um, there are certainly productive ways that we can use data to improve upon the way that we teach, the way that we learn, yeah. how we structure schools. I think that there are two challenges that we have to deal with. Okay, I think good. one is um, this very real feeling that teachers have when data is used as a stick mm. uh, or as the threat of a stick. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what we really do see, even though very few teachers, there's actually very little evidence that any teachers lost their job as a result of the True. race to the top reforms that tied yeah. teacher accountability to student test scores. Mm-hmm. But even though very few people lost their jobs, teachers are reporting much less feeling of job security. Hmm. And so in some ways, the policy double didn't do what it was intended to do because it it didn't fire the bad teachers. It didn't end up such that the bad teachers were getting fired. And what it did do was make the average teacher feel less secure in their job. 
So I think we have to really consider what kinds of incentives and policy implementation is going to happen and how before a policy happens and really um, question the validity. I mean, I question the validity, and I think many have, of um, trying to evaluate a teacher based on student test score growth, particularly in a single year. And then the second thing I think we should consider that comes from is almost more of a theoretical critique is that we have to really consider how we use data. And if we're using data as a political weapon, mm -hmm. the sort of weaponization of data and this um, I, very strong tendency recently to sort of say the research says without um, necessarily having any specific studies in mind. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that uh, when we water down data and to this vague, the research says as mm -hmm. the preface to uh, your statement of whatever you believe, yeah. then we really lose track of what we're trying to do here. So I think um, in general, trying to um, call out and be better stewards of proper data usage and uh, recognizing the weaponization of data and research, especially in more recent years, is a second kind of important factor for us to consider as we think about how we might productively use data. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Thank you for giving insight into that. Because as a teacher and as I talk to teachers, they agree, like you just said, right? We agree with the scientific method. We think it's valuable. But then there's also this, this feeling of dread, this feeling of almost humiliation, the way that data is used in the profession and the way that they're sort of forced to accumulate data sets. And yeah, and just the, the language around it um, can be defeating. And so I think that, that your insight there gives sort of a way forward and a way forward to use data in an effective way and not go on those, you know, those two points that you said and how it could be used in a negative way. So I really appreciate that. And then I want to jump back to the wages, the real wages. Okay. So this is important. This is dear to me. I feel like I'm, I'm talking about this a lot with, with fellow teachers and I, I can talk about it to someone outside the teaching profession or someone on a school board or someone in, in leadership. And they might say to me, Matt, you know, you don't make any sense. Real wages, I don't know what you're talking about. Teachers now in public school are making more money than ever. You know, I wish I could work 190 days and make close to $100,000. Like, like, what's your problem? Um, teachers make plenty. Like, how are teachers supposed to, th and, then, and then teachers oftentimes said, yeah, 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 okay, they're right. You know, th this is fine. I, I guess... I guess we're asking for too much. So when you talk about real wages, how are teachers, how's the public supposed to view wages instead of just a dollar sign? What's this real, the, the, the way we can actually put on our glasses and see it in a real way, like help us? Yes. So the, when we say real wages, we're just saying wages, your average wages adjusted for inflation. Yep. So real wages right now in 2021 dollars is as far as we is the most recent data that we have. And real wages for teachers on average across the country are about $65,000. And it's been around there since uh, about a little after 2010. It did drop 
farther down. So there's been a slight recovery since the Great Recession, but it's not it's not recovered to the pre-recession levels. Okay. And there are other ways you could think about the right comparison. Because I think that the points that people make about, oh, the number of hours worked and the days worked, that's a valid comparison. Another comparison that people make is um, to thinking about outside options for teachers, which I think mm-hmm. is also a valid comparison where um, what are the professions that require a similar level of education yeah. also offering? So, you know, that we can think about that in terms of relative wages. So you could also look at relative wages. And there have been a couple of studies that have come out with relative wages estimates. And then there are other studies that think about, okay, well, what is actual hourly estimate of teacher salaries if we take out the summer learning? We try to avoid all of that by just taking the clean and simple, real teacher salaries. So what are salaries inflation adjusted to $2021 and what have they looked like over the past 50 years across the country on average? And, um, and I think there, but there are, there are recently a study from Economic Policy Institute, EPI, came out with a, um, I think, pretty uh, well accepted uh, finding about how relative wages were also very low at this moment in time for teachers. And I appreciate you bringing those both up because oftentimes I hear about the relative wages and they also include, you know, like the your education, the money that you spend on education compared to the wages that you're going to get and the, the number of hours. So we have relative wages and then real wages. Real wages is is just wages with an inflation adjusted by inflation. And then relative wages can include many of these other factors, but it's not as clean as uh, real wages. So thanks for breaking that down for us. Another foundational piece that you included in the paper is teacher satisfaction. And that's another interesting one. And I imagine talking to other administrators or people outside the walls like I would about wages and I might get an eye roll or, or you know, give me a break. What are you worried about teacher satisfaction? But this is essential and I appreciate you bringing this up. Why is it important to bring up teacher satisfaction to the health of the workforce? I think about this, honestly, as a parent, you know, and Mm. so, so I want to think about it this way is like, when I drop my child off at school, do I want him to be in front of a teacher that says the stress of the jobs are not worth it? That say Mm. that they, if they could make the choice again, they would not teach again. Mm. Or, you know, that they're considering leaving the profession if another option arises. So those are the types of questions that we track over time to try to understand the state of the teaching profession. And then we also look at um, the uh, just how satisfied teachers report being. And each of those follow pretty similar trends um, to there are not we, we we end up using a lot of different measures for this one because we don't have a lot of teacher satisfaction measures that actually go the same measure from 1970 to 2022. But we do have a good deal 
that go from 1990 to 2022. And then we have a okay. few that go earlier. And we see a really similar trend when we put them all together, that there was a steep decline in satisfaction in the 70s, an increase in the 80s, sort of leveled off around the 90s, 2000s. And then we see a um, a similar decrease around 2010, maybe a little bit later. And so, um, for example, there's this MetLife survey of the American teacher. They've been asking about teacher satisfaction since the 1980s. Hmm. And um, when we asked this question about, in, in the same exact way that they've asked about uh, job satisfaction, um, job satisfaction has declined from about 44% in 2010 to 12% in 2022 of teachers that report being very satisfied with their jobs. Mm. So um, we do see these really stark declines. And that's not the kind of, for me personally, that's not the kind of atmosphere that I would want to send my child into. So I think as we start to think about what are the solutions, we really have to start recognizing that this is a values question. Hmm. And that um, we shouldn't be afraid to admit that we need to ask ourselves, what do we value in our country schools and how can those be um, and, and how does that translate to what we value in the teachers who are standing in front of our children every single day? And hmm. the person who's standing in front of my child every single day, I would want to say that it would be important for us as a society to, or for many local communities to come together and determine what are the values that we care about in determining the teacher workforce and who are the people that we want standing in front of our kids every day and then kind of go from there. Um, Because what we're seeing as we look at these trends in the teaching profession this isn't a one-off. Mm-hmm. This isn't a pandemic thing. This is a product of structural issues in the teaching profession. Yeah. The declines that we observe across uh, prestige, interest, preparation, satisfaction started well before the pandemic, started well before yeah. the Red Fred teacher strikes in 2018. Mm-hmm. These started around 20, 2009, 2010. Yeah. This is a product of real long-term structural issues with the teaching profession. And so it's going to take a long-term structural response that Mm -hmm. we can have a response, but it's going to have to target each of these constructs that we're talking about simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to do it. We're we're not, we're going to have to resist the urge to want immediate results. Mm -hmm. Because if we look back and if history has taught us anything, this is not hopeless. The teaching profession can improve again, but it's going to take a generation. It's going to take probably a decade. It's it's a long-term response. Well, thank you. Thank you for elevating values. Because even as we're talking, we can get into the nitty gritty. We can get into this, that, or the other. And there's so many different viewpoints. But as you just elevated values to the forefront of the conversation, that really helps to bring clarity. Like, What's important? What do we value? What do we want to emphasize? And and then how can we move forward together? So thank you for doing that. Now, we've talked about things broadly. 
We've also got to some specifics, but I'm going to ask you a pretty narrow question here about teacher certifications. So it's Mm -hmm. clear that teacher certifications being granted by universities across the country have declined. Now, in Pennsylvania, where I'm at, I think this replicates uh, nationwide. Uh, new teacher certifications fell about 64% in the past decade, right? Dropping from 21, about 21,000 to about 7,500 in 20, 2020, 2021. So the numbers have fallen significantly. But we've also, like I was, you know, teaching in, in 2010, and there was a huge surplus, right? Like 10 years ago. So is there a good way, because I've, I've heard this argument like sort of politicized as well. And and I just want to help like with clarity. Is there a good way to view this? Like what's a healthy number of teacher certifications? I know we always want more and I know we're declining, but have we declined past a point where we can sustain? Like, is there a number that we know we can look at and be like, okay, yeah, it's sustainable. I don't know. Can you help with that? It's incredibly hard to know um, because this is a supply question. We would love to know yeah. demand, yeah. right? But um, our country does not keep in any way, shape, or form systematic or even similar across states records on uh, demand. So you could think about that as teacher turnover, as retirements, or as just people leaving the profession. It's very hard to, to estimate teacher demand. So um, I will say, you know, we have some supply estimates, but we really don't know demand. However, if so, I think you're right to point out these huge drops in 2010, and perhaps we had a surplus around then. Um, uh, there, you know, um, we have data on this basically going back to about 2000. And what we see since 2000 is that more teaching license, you know, there were increasing numbers of teaching licenses getting issued up until about 2006. They sort of level off and then they really start dramatically declining. So, but we're nowhere near 2000 levels. So on in 2000, uh, there were about 280,000 new teacher licenses issued across the 50 states. Now we're at 200 below 220,000. Okay. Um, at the peak in 2006, there were over 320,000. So that's a hundred thousand person drop in the number of people who are getting new teacher licenses every year since 2010. It's a massive drop. So, but I hear you about this question. Okay. But maybe there were too many before. So we also look at data on who's completing bachelor's and master's degrees with an education major. So as another way of thinking about teacher preparation, that's a little bit different from uh, teacher licenses. And also uh, it goes, we have data on this that go back much farther. So we can actually go all the way back to 1970. And what we see is a, a decline starting around the 1970s and then a level off. And we've been about at that, um, at this, uh, about, you know, 12% or 13% of bachelor's and master's degree completers are getting education majors. And then that just plummets in 2010. Hmm. So now we're, you know, around 3% of bachelor's and master's degree completers that are getting education majors. And so it doesn't, we don't see that it was artificially inflated prior to 2010. 
it, it was pretty level from 1990 up until 2010, but then with a big plummet in 2010. The reason I bring that up is because some people approach this issue, there's, there's sort of two sides I'm seeing. One side, which is sort of a solution-oriented, a value-oriented, like, you know, these drops, how can we bring people back into the profession? Like, what can we do to fix it or, or make it a healthier situation to entice people like teacher satisfaction? Many of these things we're talking about. But then I've also seen the other side, you know, like, teachers are leaving. We can't do anything about it. That is why we don't have people in the classroom. There's nothing we can do. So it's almost like using the data to show that there's nothing they can do. That's why the classroom's empty. What are you going to do? You know, so if more teachers want to come in, great. We'll be happy to hire them. But that's why our classrooms are empty. That's why we can't hire people. Like, what's the best way to interact with, with that sort of side of the, the argument? Well, I think that that side of the argument is taking, uh, is is not a rare, but it is taking a very narrow look mm-hmm. at what the problem is. Yeah. And, and then because in that narrow look that, whoever's speaking bears no responsibility for the supply of new teachers. It's easy to sort of hand wave and say, there's nothing I can do. Mm -hmm. What we're arguing is actually that um, the supply of new teachers is directly related to the teacher satisfaction, Mm -hmm. um, whether or not people want to become teachers and how we as a society view teachers in terms of prestige. And so I think there is actually something that, anyone could do you know yeah. we're not waving any hands i think this is a a, a big task it and is. everybody does have a role to play but we also need to um have our leaders that do have the ability to kind of take a structural approach which you know in some ways is our district leaders in some ways is our state leaders to be willing to take that structural approach that is um is not going to expect an immediate result. That's not just on the here and now, but also looks mm-hmm. long term over the next. Okay, so if we don't have enough teachers to fill classrooms right now, we have to think of a solution in the moment. But we also need to think about unless we change something big, we're going to be in the same position in yeah. 10 years. Yeah. So even if we don't have a right now solution, or if the right now solution is not perfect, What's our long-term solution? Yeah, thank you for walking us through that. And Melissa, thank you so much for all of your wonderful insight and being willing to have this conversation. Listeners, you need to go and check out the paper, again, that is linked in the show notes. It's time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? So my final word, I want to say that the state of the teaching profession at this time is pretty dire. Mm-hmm. But we've it's not hopeless. We've been in a similar situation before and we got out of it. But there still is hope and I when we wrote this paper we felt like it was important to share this information to raise awareness about the critical mm-hmm. state of the profession right now, but also that this isn't unprecedented. Mm-hmm. You know, right now there's a tendency to sort of say everything is unprecedented. But this is actually precedented. Mm. We we saw a similar decline in the 1970s, and we made our way out of it through comprehensive changes that sort of tackled the profession from multiple angles. And that's what it's going to take again. Before we end, who do you want to give a shout out to? So I have to shout out my amazing co-author, 
Matthew A. Kraft, Matt Kraft, who's actually, who I'm sure would have loved to be here. He's on sabbatical this semester. He's in Spain. So um, I hope that he is eating some delicious tapas, <laughs> drinking sangria, and um, chilling somewhere. But um, I got to give him a shout out. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and all of your insight. And thank you for leaving us with that glimpse of hope. Listeners, thank you for joining us on the Diving Deep EDU podcast. If you liked this episode, subscribe, rate, review, and share it out. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire. 